anyone who steps into the pulpit with pure motives has really one primary goal, and that is to draw the listener closer into the presence of God. So uh, I've just been standing here for a few seconds, but I trust that I've already been used in that way this morning because I'm sure as, as most of you saw me step up here, you breathed a, th- a prayer of thanksgiving to God for bringing Brad Wheeler to be our preacher and, and to be here every, more, every week. And I join you in that prayer of thanksgiving. So rest assured that Brad will be back next week and once again be standing here. But in the meantime, I hope that you've come this morning to hear a word from the Lord, not a human speaker. So my prayer is that my mouth would not get in the way of God speaking to you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 42. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you, and our passage will be on page 469. This morning's message is part two of a two-week series on thirsting for God, and so the point of these two weeks and two separate psalms has just been to point out that when we face difficulty in our life, what we need more than anything is God's presence. So John taught us last week what it means to thirst. Um, When your body lacks water, nothing else can satisfy. It's a matter of life and death. So both last week's passage, Psalm 63, and this week's passage, 42, use this metaphor of thirst to teach us the spiritual truth of our need for the presence of God. So just as important as water is for our physical body, the presence of God is for our spiritual health. Without God's fellowship, we will become faint, we will wither away, and we will die. And so I have to admit this morning, I don't have a personal illustration of thirsting like God or like uh, John had last week that was as engaging. So I've never been on the point of dehydration where I had to drink water from a golf course pond in order to refresh myself. Uh, but I did. I was reminded of last Saturday. There was a group of us out. We were doing some house painting, and so I was uh, up on the roof. I was painting the gable ends on this house, and uh, it was hot out. Uh, we were we were busy. I'd been up there about thirty minutes, and Mike Lawrence comes around the corner of the house, and he sees me up there. It's hot, and he, so he offered me a drink. He offered me a water or a Gatorade that had been brought, and I wasn't thirsty yet, so I said no, thank you. And I kept painting. About 10 or 15 minutes later, Mike comes around again and offers me a drink again. Uh, well, I still wasn't thirsty, and, and my nature is that I like to get to a stopping point before taking a break, so I said, no, thank you again. And I could tell by the look on Mike's face that he was deeply concerned about my need to hydrate. So I made a, a point that as soon as I finished painting with this particular color, I'd get down off the roof and get myself something to drink. So I did so. I, I got down. I got some drink, a, a bottle of water, and Mike didn't see that. He was doing something else. And so a few minutes later, he comes by, and, and I'd already drunk the water and, and thrown the bottle away. And, and he said, did, did you ever get something to drink? And he just wouldn't be satisfied until I assured him that I had gotten something to drink and that I was not in danger. And later I thought about that, and what a great example that is. You know, would that we all were so concerned about one another's spiritual health that when we don't see evidence in someone's life of being at the fountain of living water and, and drinking from, 
from the water that brings life, that we would pursue them relentlessly until we brought them back to that source of water. And so uh, I hope that that's maybe a point of application this morning. So even as we look at this psalm, which is very individual in nature, as we talk about being in the depths, one point of application I hope that we would gain would be that as a church body, I would desire that we would bring one another and come alongside one another to be uh, not thirsty anymore. So let's look at Psalm 42, a biblical text that describes what it is like to be in the depths. Let me start reading verse 1 of Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God." My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You know, it may surprise some people to find such a text in God's word. The author is clearly going through a season of discouragement, of drought, even uh, possibly uh, depression. And as he goes through this, he's longing to return into God's presence. So he says there, as the deer pants for flowing springs, so, my so-, so pants my soul for you, O God. You know, the picture is that of a deer desperately thirsting for water. And as the psalmist mentions later in the psalm that he was plagued by enemies, the picture here then becomes probably one of a deer who has been chased by a predator and is on the run and is unable to stop uh, to find water and is getting thirstier and thirstier. And as he does this, as he gets thirstier, it becomes a severe condition. Uh, We all know that we cannot go without water and neither can a deer. The longer you go, the more jeopardy uh, becomes upon you, and soon you will die. That is just the nature of needing water. So that is the condition that the psalmist finds himself in. And how could it be that someone who is a faithful follower of God could find themselves in such a condition? Isn't following God the path to happiness? Aren't we in the, the belief that the closer we get to God, the farther away we get from sadness? Isn't that our expectation? Well, apparently we do think that way. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but typically if someone asks you how you are doing, the tendency is to say, I'm doing great, whether you truly are doing great or not, as if there's something 
that's a problem with not doing great. So in other words, is there something that we feel would benefit or not benefit us to saying that I'm having struggles, I'm, I'm discouraged? Uh, do we feel like it's a sign of spiritual weakness if we show these types of discouragements in our life? Well, the truth is, is that discouragement is certainly a part of the Christian life. And the Bible's very honest about that. If we read through Scripture, um, we see time and time again how the Scriptures address the emotional fragility of mankind. And not just mankind in general, but the Christian, the follower of Christ specifically. So as we look here this morning at this Psalm 42, it's what's known as a Psalm of Lament. It's a psalm where the author is bringing uh, their discouragement to God and pouring out their complaints to God. And interestingly enough, more of the psalms are psalms of lament than any other type of psalm. Well over 50 of the psalms are these types of psalms where the author is discouraged and is complaining to God. Notice the superscript here in the psalm. It says, to the choir master. So in other words, what is told to us in that is that this psalm was intended to be used in corporate worship. Well, that's kind of strange. This lament, this description of deep discouragement was intended to be used in the corporate gathering to worship God. That's, that seems odd. Uh, you mean we are supposed to get together and sing songs that bring us down? I thought the songs were supposed to build us up, cheer us up. You know, maybe sometimes you notice some of the songs that we sing on a Sunday morning are, are more somber, and you think, what's the deal? Are, are these people just Debbie Downers? You know, what's going on here? Well, the truth is, is that we're called together as a body and worship God regardless of our emotional state. Romans twelve fifteen tells us that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And The authentic Christian life includes both. There is rejoicing and there is weeping. And God has ordained both. He is in control of that. Scripture is too full of examples for us to believe otherwise. So not only do we see that in the Psalms as the authors continually pour out their their complaints and their discouragement to God, but throughout the rest of Scripture we see many examples as well. So uh, listen to what the great prophet Elijah says in 1 Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Or how about Jeremiah in his book, uh, chapter 20, verse 14 through 18, says this, Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, a son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon because he did not kill me in the womb. 
So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? So is it any wonder that Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet? And we know about David. He wrote many of the Psalms, the distress that he faced in his life. We know about Job, what he went through. Solomon wrote an entire book and came to the conclusion that all is vanity. Well, what about New Testament? What about Paul? Ben read earlier this morning how Paul was continuously plagued with weakness and with a thorn in his side so that he wouldn't be built up. He wouldn't be too great in his thinking. Uh, and not only that, um, Paul uh, had he experienced great anguish over the people that he loved, including his own Jewish people. In, in Romans 9, he says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What about our Lord himself? Matthew 26, 38. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. So we sang earlier about Christ, who is known as the man of sorrows. Church history, too, is full of people who struggled with discouragement and depression. Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, just to name a few. We sang the, the hymn earlier, There is a Fountain, and the author of that hymn, William Cooper, actually attempted suicide because of his depression. So one thing that we should never say about any of these people, both biblically and in church history, is that their discouragement was due to sin or unfaithfulness. And we should never say that or assume that about people today either. Certainly sin does have consequences, uh, and discouragement could be one of those consequences if you are uh, in the process of of, uh, being held down by sin. After all, if we were happy and nonchalant about our sin, then that would probably indicate a deeper problem. It is right to examine your life in that respect. But I think we'll find that our experience is much like the psalmist here this morning. And we find ourselves saying, Oh, my soul, why are you in turmoil within me? Why are you cast down, oh, my soul? So let's look at this psalm this morning. And perhaps by God's grace, we will see three things. Number one, what causes discouragement. Number two, how to live through discouragement. And finally, ways to overcome discouragement. Those will be our three points. So first, let's see if we can gain insight into what causes the kind of discouragement that the psalmist was experiencing. Verse 2, he says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So just as the deer was panting for water and could not find that water, the psalmist is thirsting for God and cannot find the presence of God. So he is discouraged because he, is, he finds himself distant from God. For the author, that distance was actually physical. Um, uh, theologians have, a, have different takes on who was the author of this psalm. You notice there it says, of the sons of Korah. Well, some theologians believe that David was the author, and if so, of the sons of Korah meant that it was something given to them. The sons of Korah were a group of Levites that led 
the, the gathering in public worship. And so if David was the author, this was given to them to lead in worship. And so if it was David, he was physically separated from Jerusalem, probably on the run, very much the same circumstance that John mentioned last week, perhaps when Absalom, his son, was chasing him and he was driven out of Jerusalem, driven away from the temple, driven away from his people, unable to go and worship. And so the distance between him and the ability to gather or appear before God was causing his discouragement. Now it may be that David wasn't the author and it was one of the sons of Korah who wrote this. If so, they were most likely in the same circumstance, driven away from Jerusalem, unable to lead the throng in worship. And so this physical separation from God caused discouragement. But even more so than that was the spiritual separation from God that was being faced. So if you look down at verse 9, I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Even more devastating than the physical separation is the idea or the feeling that God has forgotten you. And so that was what this psalmist is going through. Because of separation, be that spiritual or physical or both, he felt distant from God and therefore was greatly distressed, greatly discouraged. But that begs the question, what if I am admittedly distant from God, yet I don't feel any sense of discouragement? Well, if that's the case in your life, I would encourage you to evaluate your standing before God. Maybe you are not a follower of Christ. If that is you, I'd urge you to look closer into what would make one pant for the living God. This creator God is alive, and he holds the keys to eternity. He is holy, and we are unable to approach him due to our sinfulness. Every single human being stands condemned before him because of our moral failure and our selfish nature. Every effort that you or I would make to earn God's favor falls woefully short of his perfect standard. We are all without hope, except that because of God's mercy and grace, an incomprehensible love. He sent his son Jesus to be born of the woman, to live a perfect life, and die a sacrificial death on the cross. God then applies Christ's perfect righteousness to whoever will believe in him. And he applies that person's sins to Jesus' account to be paid for in his death in the sinner's rightful place. He then calls that person forgiven He calls them son or daughter and gives them an eternal inheritance never to be taken away. And it's this incredible exchange that causes us to long for God as if we are dying of thirst. If if that's you or if that's not you this morning and you would long for that type of relationship, then uh, stay afterwards. Speak to someone. There's many people here this morning that would love to tell you more about who God is and, and what he has done for us. Well, notice what else is causing the psalmist to groan under the weight of discouragement. Look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, where is your God? Verse 9 and 10. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with deadly wounds in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, where is your God? Enemies, adversaries, those who taunt This is really a heaping of burning coals on the head of one who is already feeling distant from God. Uh, 
God is not seen and is not felt by the psalmist. Yet his enemies are right there in his face, taunting him and questioning him, mocking him. So discouragement then can often lead to the temptation to believe lies. We feel distant from God, and yet there are such adversaries in our face that we tend to uh, maybe forget what is true and start to believe the lies. And then third, the circumstances of life have overcome him. Verse 7 Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Do you get a sense of the author's feeling of hopelessness here? He's thirsting for living water. He's thirsting for a drink. Yet at the same time, he feels like he's about to be completely drowned by violent waters. Deep, roaring waterfalls, breakers and waves. He feels like he's about to be overwhelmed. So... um, Notice who he gives credit to for all of this, for all of his feelings of distance, all of the presence of his enemies, and the overwhelming nature of his circumstances in his life. He lays it all at the feet of God. He says, uh, at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and all your waves have gone over me. So the sense that, that the psalmist is feeling is that he's overwhelmed. And what you might be surprised to hear me say, that he is right and attributing these things to God. The psalmist is correct when he recognizes that God is actually in charge of all of the discouraging events in his life. The physical distance, the presence of enemies, the circumstances that overwhelm, God is sovereign over all these things, and none of them catch him by surprise. This leads to our next point, which is living through discouragement. If you find yourself this morning identifying with the psalm and with the anguish of his author that he's going through, then it's important to understand that God has ordained your discouragement and and he is using it as a sanctifying instrument in your life. As Charles Simeon notes, the, the 19th century pastor, God is pleased oftentimes to afflict his people in order to wean them from the love of this present world and to quicken their souls to more diligent inquiries after him. You know, we should not live under the delusion that God wants us to be happy all the time. That's a false doctrine of the prosperity gospel. So what should we do then as we wait for the cloud to lift? Well, again, let's turn to the psalmist as our example. The strategy we see in Psalm 42 for living through discouragement, goes like this. Endure, pour out your soul to God, fight feelings with truth, and repeat. He goes through this over and over. Notice the pattern. You know, we're not told how long the psalmist was in this state of discouragement. It was at least long enough to write two psalms because Psalm 43 is really a continuation of Psalm 42. So he went through, he wrote the two, And what we see is by the end of both of these psalms, he's still in the pit of discouragement. So what we see then is that whenever the tide of discouragement begins to rise, the author begins to fight it. He fights back with truth. And it's a continuous cycle. So the enemy wants nothing more than to see the child of God give in to the discouragement, the attacks, and the overwhelming circumstances. But God's child has God's spirit. He has already won. 
So notice that even though the author feels distant, and he has let us know that that's true, he remains in continual conversation with God. Verse 1, so my soul pants for you, O God. Verse 4, he's simultaneously remembering the blessings of God while he pours out his soul to God. Verse 6, he says, I remember you, O God. Verse 8, a prayer to the God of my life. And verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? This psalm is essentially a prayer. The author feels distant and discouraged, but he continues to pray through the process, pouring out his soul to God. So the more distant that you feel from God, the more intentional you need to be about bringing your troubles to him. There's nothing worse than isolation when you find yourself in the depths. You need to pour out your soul to the one who holds you in his hand, who loves you, and who hears what you pray. And at the same time, you must cling to what is right and what is true, even when you don't feel like those things are true. Notice he identifies God in verse 2, the living God. That is a truth that he is holding on to. He identifies God as his salvation and his God in verses 5 and verse 11 that repeat one another. He cites God's steadfast love and continual presence in verse 8. Again, even though he doesn't feel like these things are true, he doesn't see them firsthand, but he trusts in what he has been taught. Verse 9, he identifies God as his rock. So notice the pattern. Dejection is countered with little nuggets of truth with honest prayer, and with endurance for as long as it takes. He goes on and on to continue to bring these things towards God. And as he continues to feel discouraged, he continues to trust and believe that he would one day come out of this discouragement. Verses 5 and 11 make this clear as he says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, he says with confidence. So in this Psalm 42 gives us not only an example of how to live through discouragement, but also how to overcome it. And this will be our final point, ways to overcome discouragement. Now you might wonder, how can we glean ways to overcome discouragement from a psalm where we're not giving any evidence that the author did overcome the discouragement? So when you don't actually see this taking place, how can we trust that it will work? Well, again, this is a matter of endurance. Keep persevering, and eventually, God's, in God's timing, the clouds will break. So as we look through ways, perhaps, that we can overcome discouragement, the first weapon that I want to point out here might surprise you, and that is simply to gather regularly with the saints. Notice verse 2 again. He says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So the desire of the psalmist is to return to appear before God. And that reference in context is a reference to the, to the corporate gathering of the saints. So in the psalmist's day, when they appeared before God, it was done corporately. So as he is in uh, discouragement and dejection, his desire, his hope, and his confidence is that he would appear again with the body to worship God. And so we recognize we live in a different day, in a different era 
Believers now can go before the throne of God at any time because of Christ's work on the cross. We, we don't have to have a human mediator like they did in the Old Testament to make the presence before God possible. Christ has done that. Uh, he tore the veil in two. He opened up access to the Father without the need of someone to be a go-between like the priests were in the psalmist's day. Well, you might think then that the need to gather corporately then would, would decrease, but actually that is not the case at all. The need to gather corporately has not decreased. It is as urgent as, ev- as ever. Listen to Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So do you catch that? It says all the more as you see the day drawing near. So a reference to the return of Christ. So the closer we get to Christ's return, the more important it becomes to gather regularly with the church. And note there in in Hebrews the reasons that are given for gathering with the church. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. He says, let us, he says, but don't give up the, the habit, but encouraging one another. So we gather together to stir one another up to love and good works. We gather together to encourage one another. And is that not exactly what the discouraged person needs, but those around him to encourage and to build up? See, our inclination is when we are discouraged or when we're in the depths to withdraw, to isolate ourselves. But just as isolation from God is unwise in overcoming discouragement and we need to continually pour out our soul and pray to God, isolation from the body of Christ is unwise as well. You need the encouragement of your brothers and sisters in Christ. So a few months ago when we were in 1 Corinthians, as Brad was leading us through that series, we saw how God gifts people and gives them to the body, gathers them in local churches to be gifts, to be useful to to one another. Uh, And so in this church, in University Baptist Church, God has gifted people to be encouragers, to lift one another up, build up those who are discouraged. So if you are feeling discouraged or down, let the, your brothers and sisters who have been gifted in that way exercise their gifts on your behalf. Let them build you up um, and allow them to, to come alongside you in prayer and pouring out their hearts to the Lord on your behalf as you do the same. And even recognize that even in your time of discouragement, you are still a blessing and an encouragement to others by your presence. You know, discouragement does not render you ineffective in the work of Christ and in the things that he has called you to do. It's not necessary that you feel ineffective if you are feeling discouraged. In fact, the opportunity to rejoice and weep over what your brother is going through can be extremely beneficial to uh, overcoming your own discouragement. So regular, continual, get, continual gathering with Christ's church is critical. And the psalmist recognized that here, even as he references that in verse 4. He, he associates the time when he was not discouraged with the time when he was going with the people and leading the people in the worship corporately. So um, as we see that here, we recognize then, secondly, 
that in addition to gathering corporately with the body, as we noted earlier, the psalmist, when he was living through discouragement, fought feelings with truth. So let's explore that a little bit deeper this morning. Another way of saying this is preach truth to yourself. If you are being buffeted by discouragement, being buffeted by things that are coming against you, the solution, the, the, the way to overcome that is to counter that with truth. So preach truth to yourself daily. You need to counter what is false and emotional with what is true and eternal. So look at, again, look at again how the psalmist does this. Every time discouragement builds up and threatens to overwhelm, the writer fights back with objective truth. So again, we see that in verses 1 and 2. When his soul is panting for God, God's presence due to distance, he places his confidence in the fact that appearing before him once again will be the solution. When he is sorrowful, To the point of not eating, as it says there in verse 3, he says, my tears have been my food, a reference to the fact that he was so discouraged that he was going without food, and uh, the tears then become his his food, metaphorically speaking, and at the same time his enemies are mocking him, he counters with joyful memories of worshiping and fellowship and leading the saints, and he does that here in verse 4. And so this is not just reminiscing. This is not just saying, remember the good old days. It's a trust in the unchanging nature of the God who we were created to praise. The same God who held him up while he was in corporate worship has not changed. So even though he isn't feeling it, he remembers that God is never, uh, has not changed. So you see there in verse 7 when he is being overwhelmed due to the circumstances in life. He counters that with what he knows to be true in verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So he recognizes that God is there both night and day and is in control of the things that he is facing. It's this type of truth that will help him to overcome discouragement. Verse 9 and 10, he's being taunted by his enemies, and he counters that God is his rock. Um, And even doing so in the midst of lament there as he prays, God, why have you forgotten me? So this is not just an afterthought to declare God is, is his rock. It's an acknowledgement that God is firm, unmovable, and unchanging, regardless of circumstances. If we will look to that fact, to the rock that is our God, even though our circumstances swirl around us, we'll recognize that he still holds us fast. This is critical to remember when we're being tossed to and fro. Well, finally, nowhere is the psalmist's determination to fight his discouragement more clearly illustrated than in the identical verses of 5 and 11. And if we were to look at Psalm 43, verse 5 of that psalm is the same verse as well. And it goes like this. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Look at how the, the psalmist confronts his feelings in this verse. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil? And if you find yourself discouraged, have you asked yourself why? Why are you cast down, self? Why are you in turmoil? 
And you may respond in a number of ways. Perhaps you'll say, well, I'm discouraged because I'm facing serious health challenges. Or someone I love is facing serious health challenges. Or perhaps it's financial concerns. Or perhaps it's undue stress at work. Or the fact that you're out of work and and are looking for that. Or maybe you're discouraged due to a relationship that is not going well. Maybe on this 4th of July weekend, you're discouraged at the state of our nation. This country that you love and perhaps even fought for seems to be growing in hostility towards our Lord and His church. Or possibly you just can't seem to overcome that besetting sin that buffets you constantly and you can't seem to get away from it. Well, whether it's one of these things or any number of something that might be uh, bringing you down, causing you to feel distant from God, the act of questioning why for the believer is the chance to hold these things up against God's powerful truths. Here are all these things that are discouraging me. Well, how do they compare to the truth that I know about God? And that's what the psalmist does here. Are there things in our life that are discouraging us and those things are real? Absolutely they are. Discouragement is real. And to act like it doesn't exist is just a facade. But what's equally real and even more true is the Almighty God whom we serve. In order to overcome discouragement, we need to shift our thinking from the discouragement to our eternal hope. Hope in God, the psalmist says here. The Hebrew word for hope here means to wait, to expect, to be patient. It's a word of trust based on the, the author's knowledge of God. He says, I shall again praise him. How could he say that with such confidence? It's only because he knew God's character and his promises. The psalmist knew that when God begins a work in someone's life, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, as Philippians 1, 6 tells us. The psalmist shall again praise him, even if it's not in this life. God's promises are eternal. So even if one never pulls out of a depression in this life, the one who he is a faithful follower of Christ will praise him again. And that is something that we can hold on to and should hold on to. So if you are struggling to overcome discouragement, remember that Christ has overcome death. The psalmist notes that God is his salvation. This trumps everything that the world might throw at us. Nothing that causes discouragement can overcome your salvation. As Paul says in in Romans, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Truth is the antidote for discouragement. Yet oftentimes it must be applied over and over again, as we see here in this psalm. Three times in these two psalms, 42 and 43, this truth is applied to the discouragement, and there's no indication that it ended there. It is that cycle. But truth is that antidote for overcoming discouragement. So what will you do, not if, but when, you find yourselves in the depths Battling difficult circumstances in a broken world. It will happen. We all know it. 
Will you allow these circumstances to bring you low and overwhelm you to the point of withdrawal and isolation? Will you give in to the enemy's taunts and accusations? Or will you become even more intentional about gathering with those you love and who love you and will weep with you? Will you surround yourself with those who will pray for you and hold you up? Will you pour out your soul to God and preach the truth of hope and salvation to yourself continually, even in the absence of deliverance? Will you remain faithful even while the Lord's answers seem delayed? What about you, church? Will you embrace your discouraged brother rather than avoiding him? Will you commit to love and build up the brokenhearted? Will you labor endlessly in prayer for eternal hope to overcome depression and for panting souls to be refreshed by living water? Let's pray.